This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, January 20th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. The fights over voting rights, securing elections, and other reforms are leaving out, at least for now, the reform of the process that has led to so much confusion and arguably played a role in that Capitol riot about a year ago, the Electoral Count Act. Cato's Walter Olson details how it might be fixed and why it ought to be a bipartisan fix. What was the controversy that led to the creation of the Electoral Count Act to begin with? The Tilden Hayes election was one of the low points, really, of 19th century American politics, and it resulted in a tremendously con- confusing and hard-fought post-election battle in which, for example, uh, states sent multiple delegations claiming to represent the state, uh, voting for different presidential candidates to Washington. And it was resolved in you know, unsatisfactory ways, which are beside the point for this purpose, but it was resolved through compromise. But it, it, it lingered the feeling that the system had simply not produced uh, reliable answers. The system had failed, and something like ten years later, Congress got it together to try to respond with the Electoral Count Act, which laid out in rambling and confusing terms what should happen in the future if Congress is faced with uh, the sorts of challenges like multiple slates of electors being reported from the same state, disputes as to whether or not a state is properly one of the states of the union, Uh, a lot of things that we think may be purely academic, but which could conceivably come up, not just in the circumstances of Reconstruction after the Civil War, but in, in case of disputes over who the proper official is in a state to send the report of its electoral votes. What do you do in case of an allegedly disqualified candidate, like someone who is not 35 years old, or an instance where the president and vice president-elect are from the same state in violation of a clause of the Constitution? So they passed this law. It did not come under very much strain simply because it was sufficiently clear in most later presidential elections who had won the Electoral College. There wasn't a live dispute, and so there weren't too many occasions to get into the weeds of what on earth does this language mean, uh, which comes up again and again at different points in the text of the Electoral Account Act. Well, in most of my adult life, in terms of watching presidential elections come and go, it's all about the map. It's all about numbers. It's all about getting to the the key number to decide who has enough electoral votes. And quite often it is very, very close. And so in 2020, we had a particularly live controversy about electoral votes and who were appropriate slates of electors being sent by uh, the proper officials or some other group of uh, lawmakers. And and yet we, here in 2020, uh, 2022 now, It doesn't seem that, at least so far, the Electoral Count Act is a central focus of either Democrats or Republicans. First of all, is that right? And if if that is right, then why? Well, you've asked several questions there. (laughs) In the immediate aftermath of January 6th and the uh, 
remarkable circumstances under which Congress certified the vote. There were a lot of people, I can guarantee, in both parties that were taking a very close look at whether the process could be clarified and improved, because we had just had such a near-miss experience. Uh, even what, aside from the disruptions of the capital fund, it was apparent that potentially a small number of objectors could require the somewhat cumbersome process by which the two houses go into separate chambers and debate for a couple of hours over an objection, and that uh, this was in fact, launched over six states, but could it not be launched over all 50, in which case you are no longer operating on the same calendar day? Could it be used as a simple delaying tactic? So these questions, and then the the shock in many quarters over the actual counts in which a majority of House Republicans backed the challenges, despite the lack of evidence for those challenges. On the record, a much smaller number of senators, but nonetheless, there was a feeling that a lot could, could go wrong here, and we had seen several of the different possibilities. We had certainly seen pressure placed on Vice President Mike Pence to take a more active role. That's a diplomatic way of putting it. Very diplomatic. To take the role that had been expected of earlier and by expected by earlier vice presidents uh, of opening the envelopes, because that's what the um, vice president is instructed to do, and turn it into a judgmental exercise in which the vice president declares which votes are valid, which are not valid, perhaps declaring some states not to have submitted any votes, and the, therefore, according to uh, the argument, lowering the number of electoral votes needed to, to make a majority in the college, or perhaps, as others wanted, sending some back to states on the grounds that, in the vice president's view, there was still uncertainty as to whether or not those states had come out the way they reported. Now, People will remember that many, many times in the history of party transitions, a vice president has presided over this same process and has certified or counted the votes the certification of that vice president's own loss in the subsequent election. Al Gore did that, for example, when defeated uh, in the remarkably close and, and hard-fought 2000 election, and many other vice presidents have also done so. But the argument coming from some of President Trump's supporters, as we know they were spinning out legal theories, was that those vice presidents hadn't realized how much power they had, and there was nothing to stop them from second-guessing, uh, in some cases, the um, validity of the electors and ultimately the validity of the reported votes cast in that state. And now, to be totally fair, Mike Pence, he called some vice presidents of, of the past and said, what is my range of decision-making here? And they apparently uni universally said, None. He did. And uh, I believe Dan Quayle was one of them, for example. And I think that from the reports, it sounds as if Pence was looking for a good trail of advice to do what he knew he wanted to do anyway, which was the the right thing, the, the thing in line with everyone's constitutional views uh, until, you know, shortly before the, the event. In terms of reforming it, in terms of clarifying one, what the what the role of of Congress is here, and which authorities Congress should rely on in states to assert 
these are the valid electors, what what changes ought to be made and how bipartisan would support for those changes be? Well, word from the Hill suggests that there is quite a lot of bipartisan support for many of the perhaps most or all of the key points in reforming the electoral conduct uh, you know knock on wood but there are really some indications that there is some consensus not in every single issue but on a lot of the important issues what generally needs to be done and this is a laundry list inevitably because what might be ideal is one thing that's not going to happen, which is to rewrite the law from start to finish. I think a lot of people recognize that would be the best if we had a lot of time and the country were not highly polarized. Uh, in practice, what you are more likely to get is a laundry list of four or six general categories of cleaning it up. And let me list what some of them are. The role of the vice president is is probably one of the easiest ones to get consensus on because no one that I know of is especially pushing the the argument in Congress that the vice president has discretion. So that one uh, I take as a given. It, it, if there is reform, it will probably include some language specifying that. Before we get to the grounds for objections, which are in some ways the, the meatiest part of this, let's talk a little about the procedure that gave them so much trouble last time. And it arises from the threshold needed for an objection. The rule had been that if you have so many as one House member and one senator willing to object to the results from the state, then uh, there is an objection. It must go through the full process of consideration. And we know from earlier years that some very dubious objections to earlier president's elections. Like, remember the wild claims about deep old voting machines supposedly helping George W. Bush? Well, that actually got aired because it only took a tiny handful of Democratic critics. Uh, and there were other objections to other presidents where they found objections in one house, but maybe wouldn't get a senator. And so it, it died without producing a debate. Nonetheless, if nothing else, it is a tempting soapbox for someone who wants publicity to get up, find one member of the other house to join them in an objection, and get a couple of free hours of press-friendly objection time to make some unrelated point about the election being unfair. So we've now seen that emanating from both parties at different times over multiple elections. We don't need that. I think there's therefore going to be wide interest in raising the threshold. Perhaps 10% of each house, perhaps 20% or 30% of each house need to sign on to an objection. If they can't get 20%, they're probably not close enough to actually sustaining the objection as valid. Uh, if they do have as many as 20%, then it's probably not just a few attention seekers. There probably is a significant faction that would be worth hearing out. And again, if Congress is so divided that 20% of each House will vote for an objection to all 50 states just to delay things, then you're in lots of trouble. But we're not claiming that we can solve all sorts of trouble. We're just trying to, to eliminate some of the easier cases where the country is not at, at the precipice, but but the, the process is being abused. So there you've got the procedural part, which is make it more demanding to get an objection onto the floor and set aside some of the debate from both houses. And again, there's one where I think the very likely to be some bipartisan interest in coming to some agreement on that. Now you turn to the question, all right, which objections should be taken up and what are valid grounds 
for challenging and potentially throwing out electoral votes. And it's tempting, but it would not be correct to say, uh, no, no, their hands should be tied. They should just take what is sent them. Uh, we know in the first place, because it happened with Hayes Tilden, that there could conceivably be multiple slates submitted with a plausible claim to uh, representing someone official in the state. Hasn't happened in a long time, but they have to consider that it might happen. Other wild things could happen. A state could send in too many electoral votes. You can't just count those. If a state sent in too many electoral votes, which ones would you count? It has happened before that there was dispute about whether a state had become a state in time, probably not going to happen, but you want to think out the, the, the possibilities. So just suffice it to say that there are instances, some case in which someone's signature is forged, some case in which someone voted on the wrong day, in which there would be a genuine case for leaving to Congress some of that power of judgment about which electors to count. Now, the analysis that Cato's Andy Craig has made, which I think is very right, very much on the right track, is to point out that there are two elections that go on in what we think of the, as the presidential election system. There is the popular election in which people go to the polls and select the electors in the electoral college. And to be clear, this is that that vote occurs because state legislatures have delegated to voters that task. Yes, under the Constitution, the state legislatures have a lot of discretion about how to structure the selection of presidential electors. Every state currently leaves it to general popular election, and I think there is a good case that whatever decision they made before the election, they then have to stick with that. They can't change to a different method of selection. But if they wanted to, and in the 19th century, you did see a couple of variations in which they uh, used a different method. But the once they have settled on that, then you have election number one, which is voters come together and select a state of, slate of eight or 10 or whatever the number is, electors. And then you have the second election, as you might call it, in which those eight or 10 or 11 electors come together on a certain day and cast their votes. As we know from the controversy over so-called faithless electors, it has happened sometimes that one of them would vote for a third-party candidate or uh, in, in some other way not vote for who they were expected to. But that second election is the one that Congress is being asked to canvas, being asked to examine to make sure that there was no fraud or misadventure. They are not being asked to go back and look at the first election because by the time the electors meet, controversies over the first election should already have been sunk and melded into an answer. There has been an opportunity to challenge to obtain court review in all states of whether the initial vote canvas was correct, uh, whether a different group should be impaneled to be those 10 electors. And uh, when those 10 electors meet, not having been successfully challenged in court, the first set of controversies goes away. It stops being live for Congress to look at. Congress looks at the potential controversies of the second election, which is, is there an imposter who is a different person than was the named elector, you know, the, all that range of different things. And 
So the idea that many have been talking about, which I think is a promising one, is to try to uh, come up with an exhaustive list of here are all the things, however unlikely, that we believe would justify refusing to accept a reported electoral vote. Another idea which might complement that is to spe specify, and by the way, uh, these are three things that would not justify, you know, that uh, just to try to lock and bolt the door against people coming in saying, you know, let me tell you about, you know, mysterious electronic communication with voting machines. You know, we need to rerun this this state. No, if you have not gotten uh, your act together sufficiently to do that challenge in such a way as to affect the uh, seating of that state's electors, in other words, if the court challenges, which they were free to um, pursue there, failed, then Congress is not going to give you another bite at that apple. I guess neither here nor there. It would sort of forestall perhaps phone calls the day before Congress is set to meet to count those votes to certain secretaries of state in the country to find votes, which, by the way, I think is a felony in Georgia. But I'm, I'm going to leave that for the court uh, process to sort out. But the <laughs> but the, most of this is nothing special as far as the finality that is required of elections. Uh, we have always known when it comes to elections for other offices, when it comes to court review of elections, that finality is important rather than leaving doors endlessly open for the relitigation of elections. You need certainty as to who won. And Accordingly, you funnel the court challenges and the various other ways which can be administrative challenges within a state election board or whatever. You funnel those things into the early part of the period so that people have to put their cards on the table more or less immediately uh, if they think that there has been a fraud that needs to be sued or, or you know, put into the administrative review procedure. So all of those would, you think, would have some consensus in Congress to, to do those reforms? I think there is a lot of bipartisan interest in each of the reforms that we've talked about. And there will probably be some inevitable difference of opinion on a couple of the individual categories. And that shouldn't prevent constructive talks because there are some gray areas and some hard cases. I sometimes say for this law that it, there's more important that there be certainty of an answer than that the answer be the absolutely optimal one. Uh, you want, if possible, people to know before Congress meets that day what the outcome is going to be. Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.